Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, June 5th, 2018, and I'm your host, Ariel Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. The information you're about to hear is from Lavendar's vault concerning Atlantis, as it was given to her in November and December of 1980 by the Pleiadians. She was shown, as if watching a movie, what happened in Atlantis and who the players were then and now. As we face similar challenges today with technology advancing at a dangerous rate without regard to spiritual or health implications, this information reminds us reminds us of the hard lessons we learned then and to prevent it from happening again. The code Never Again Atlantis is embedded in the DNA of countless starseeds today to help us remember those lessons and put them into use. Our next starseed quest to Arkansas is August 17th through the 20th, which is the anniversary of August Harmonic Convergence of 1987, when the Atlantean technology was allowed to start returning to the planet, giving us a chance to get it right this time with more spiritual wisdom. Atlantis has a strong connection to Arkansas, which is where they buried their master crystals and is why we take starseeds there for the activations. For more information about the quest, write to crystals, that's plural, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-S, at starseedhotline.com. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And we won't be taking any questions at the end of the show tonight since the material from the vault has been pre-recorded. We have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and it's a safe place to connect with other Starseeds thanks to Tammy's helpful dedication. You can download our shows on iTunes or right here on Blog Talk. If you'd like to show your support of our program, please click follow on our page here at Blog Talk, and you'll get our weekly show notices. The toll free number for starseedhotline.com is 888. 888- 8810881 The stage 1 starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart and the stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar Anastasia or myself For those who need healing of any kind emotional physical or spiritual for yourself or your pets Tammy's powerful remote sessions will make a difference for you And if you have a birthday coming up, you don't want to miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And please remember, if you want the interpretation of that chart, you'll need to order it at least three months ahead of time to make sure you get it in before your 10 hours because we do have a waiting list. So first tonight, I want to introduce Anastasia with her fascinating Starseed News. Hey, Anastasia. Hi, Ariel. Great to be with you tonight. We've got tons of news. Good news. Well, a small asteroid, according to this headline, but listen a little bit further. A uh, A small asteroid hits Earth. A small asteroid that's been titled ZLAF-9B2 hit Earth on Saturday, June 2nd, 
exploding in, exploding in the atmosphere over Botswana, South Africa, before it could reach the ground. Now, see, it didn't really hit Earth. <laughs> but anyway, as the story goes, the Catalina Sky Survey in Arizona discovered the space rock just hours before it hurtled toward our planet from inside the orbit of the moon. Sensors that are used to monitor rogue nuclear explosions detected the asteroid and estimated its yield at near 500 tons of TNT. Close call. And from Hawaii, there was, on Saturday, a 5.8 quake that rattled the big island. Um, it was Saturday afternoon when that happened. It was among the strongest of recent quakes felt around the big island. As of 11 in the morning on Sunday, officials said that 500 smaller earthquakes were recorded near the summit within that 24-hour period, and that is the most earthquakes recorded in a 24-hour period on Hawaii Island. The south side of the island is slipping toward the ocean to relieve the added stress caused by the injection of magma into the volcano, said a professor from the University of Hawaii. On Saturday, the flow also apparently evaporated Green Lake, which was the largest freshwater lake in the islands. And from Hawaii, from Hawaii News Now, they're telling us that active eruptions claimed dozens more homes over the weekend as a robust channel cut its way through Kapoho before reaching the sea. As of Monday, at least 159 homes have now been claimed by lava. That's up from 87 on Friday. This was yesterday's report. Now, officials report that there's a lot of destruction. It's like a flood of lava. It's just pouring out, covering everything in its path. It looks like there's no stopping it. Now, the latest estimate that I got today is that the lava covers about eight square miles, and the most recent update is that lava from the Kilauea destroyed hundreds of homes in a rural area on the Big Island last night raising the total from 159 to we don't know how many yet. The destruction is the largest number of, of homes since the eruption began last month. No injuries, thankfully, were reported in the area during this latest flow, which had previously been evacuated. And in Guatemala, Guatemala has had an eruption at the Fuego volcano. On Sunday, the most violent eruption of Guatemala's Fuego volcano in more than four 40 years occurred with a stream of lava and thick plume of black smoke and ash soaring 33,000 feet into the sky that rained onto the capital and other regions. The eruption also generated pyrocrastic flows, fast-moving mixtures of very hot gas and volcanic matter descending down the slopes, engulfing and destroying communities. Sunday's eruption caught residents of remote mountain hamlets off guard with little or no time to flee to safety. Soldiers are now helping firefighters search for missing people. The official death toll from the destruction at the Fuego volcano has risen to 69, with thousands of people housed in temporary shelters. Volcanologists report the eruption is now over. It is the second time the volcano has erupted this year. This eruption, latest eruption, is Guatemala's deadliest since uh, 1902. Oh. And in Indonesia, Mount Mariapi has exploded with its biggest eruption this year. Um, they raised the flight warning around Mount uh, Mariapi in central Java to its highest level just a couple of days ago after the volcano sent a towering plume of gray ash more than six kilometers into the air, and that was the biggest eruption this year. 
the Volcano Observatory issued a code red warning alert, which means that a volcanic eruption is underway, spewing a significant ash emission into the atmosphere. And there's more. With this worldwide volcanic activity, it is raising concern of safety along the U.S. United States western coastline because there, there is a chain of 13 active volcanoes. The west coast is home to an 800-mile expanse, a chain of 13 volcanoes. Now, the eruption at Hawaii in the Pacific Rim has experts and residents watching Pacific Coast volcanic peaks very carefully because, like Kilauea, these mainland volcanoes are also a part of the increasingly active ring of fire. Roughly 450 volcanoes make up the horseshoe-shaped International Volcanic Ring, with Kilauea situated in about the middle. Now, mainland volcanoes include, as many of you know, Mount St. Helens and Mount Rainier in Washington, um, Mount Hood and South Sister in Oregon, Mount Shasta and Lassen Volcanic Center in California. The recent Kilauea eruptions have stoked concern and unease among residents elsewhere in these volcanic regions, but in response to local concerns, experts say that no Pacific Coast eruption appears imminent. But local governments are well aware that situations can change very fast, as it did in Guatemala. Uh, experts say all our mountains are considered active, and geologically speaking, things seem to happen in the Northwest about every 100 years. It is an inexact timeline, however. Now, what's going on in these communities? They are practicing volcano preparedness as alertness is on the rise with each new seismic tremor and volcanic eruption along the ring of fire. Evacuation routes are planned and studies are being done to ascertain the level of hazards to populations around the vicinity of each of these Pacific Coast volcanoes. Some experts believe that Mount Rainier is the most overdue for an eruption, that uh, Mount St. Helens still has some more to give, while others claim that Mount Shasta is the greatest risk because the crater, crater is surrounded by towns. So, mm. And wow. uh, in India, uh, there's the case of the disappearing Himalayan butterflies. Recent absence of 51 species in India means that they have most likely gone extinct. According to experts, butterflies are very sensitive and fragile organisms, and one of the best indicators for changes in environment and the ecology of any region. They are a good model for assessment and habitat monitoring studies and effective indicators of forest health if they are widespread, they are conspicuous, and they are easily recognizable. This is according to Indian etymologists. They tell us that if there are no recent sightings of 51 species in this region of India, it means that they have most likely gone locally extinct. And this shows that everything is not well with the Himalayan environment. Well, in the science department, is there a solution to the impending extinction of bees? I would hope so, but this solution is going to surprise you. It's technology, and they call it the Bramble Bee Robot. At West Virginia University, a robot named Bramble Bee has been discovered to pollinate greenhouse-grown blackberry plants trying to act like a bee. Computer vision algorithms help the robot locate flowers, and using its robotic arm, it has soft brushes that touches the flowers to pollinate them. 
still under development, the robot arm scans QR codes that researchers have placed inside the blackberry bushes in order to identify its targets. Around three-quarters of food plants rely on pollinators, and colony collapse disorder, which is, you know, the mass death of honeybees, is uh, primarily from pesticides and climate change, is making pollination more expensive because beekeepers have to continually replace their bees, which sadly in turn die off themselves. Forty percent and rising of wild insect pollinators, including bumblebees and species like the Hawaiian yellow-faced bee, are at risk of extinction. In scientific theory, robotic pollinators could help replace natural pollinators, but what a sad day when humans have to depend on technology for their utter survival. We know how fragile and unreliable technology really is and that the unseen and infinite intricate connections of nature could never be replaced by something the human mind can conceive. And a pilot whale died with what in its stomach? A whale in Thailand died after ingesting over 80 plastic bags. An autopsy on the pilot whale revealed that its gut was packed to capacity, stuffed to the maximum with trash bags. Ugh. And that's, <laughs> uh, well, there's hope. I got good news because of Starseed Emily. She sent me some articles, and thank you, Emily. This relates to that article about the whale. There's all kinds of news suddenly in, in the uh, uh, available about what we're going to do about plastic in this world. The World Environmental Day is surrounded around plastic um, as the world mobilizes itself to solve this problem. And uh, from Emily is an article that lets us know that plastic straws will soon be withdrawn from many supermarket shelves. By the way, I want to say when I was a young person, we had paper straws and they worked just fine. And they still sell them too. And according to this article, some retailers will stop selling plastic straws by the end of this year, as well as reducing plastic packaging. Wow, fantastic. Uh, Supermarket giants Kohl's and Woolworths have announced new environmental commitments in response to a shift in consumer concerns about the environment. Kohl's store surveys show that two-thirds of their customers want to see waste reduced. So now the store wants to... Replace plastic. Things like bananas and kale will no longer be wrapped in plastic. They will replace their single-use bags with 30% recycled material, and they're going to provide recycle bins for the return of soft plastics, which is really a service because not a lot of communities have plastic recycling. Meanwhile, Woolworth said it will stop selling plastic straws by the end of 2018, as well as reduce plastic packaging, keeping 134 million plastic straws from going into circulation every year. Just one retailer alone will prevent 134 million plastic straws from polluting the environment. Now, in Europe, there are much stronger movements to eliminate plastic straws, plastic food wrappings, things like that. It's a wonderful movement. Thank God. I I hope it's, you know, uh, I'm happy it's happening now. Okay, that's great. Right. And we can can also be mindful of that. You know, every time I buy something, I'm going, good grief, it's all wrapped in plastic. It's just put me on the the move to just 
cut my cons- consumption as much as I can, and perhaps where food is concerned, just make as much as I can homemade. Time is always an issue for us, but nevertheless, it's uh, it's a problem each one of us can probably help a little bit with as we cut down on our purchases of plastic wrap products. Well, here's a hysterical article. I had to share it with you. A sinkhole has been spotted on the White House lawn, and the metaphors write themselves. <laughs> people, are, uh, people are having some fun with reports that a White House sinkhole has developed on the North Lawn. News of the sinkhole quickly spread on Twitter, giving users an opportunity to crack jokes about the unexpected development, including one of my favorite websites, Dictionary.com. I have to subscribe to their word of the day. <laughs> All right, here's their definition for sinkhole. A hole formed in soluble ro- rock by the action of water, they wrote. Also, sinkhole, a place into which foul matter runs. Now, <laughs> other Twitter users have chimed in with metaphors and jokes, such as, did you create that sinkhole? Another Twitter user wrote, there is no better metaphor. Another Twitter user wrote, the swamp fights back. <laughs> and again, please let it be the biggest and best sinkhole. A beautiful sinkhole. <laughs> and finally, the biggest sinkhole. No White House has ever had a sinkhole this big. That I can tell you. <laughs> there is great poetry in all of that. Ah, uh, you got to love it. Well, you've heard the idiom, that's the fox guarding the hen house, which in times when people raised backyard chickens, everybody knew that a ravenous chicken-eating fox would never be trusted to protect the hen house. Well, today, in our present time, the foxes are getting very fat everywhere in government, like the FCC, for instance. I say, how about a new acronym for the Federal Communications Commission, or the FCC? How about we go like this? The FCC, the fox, consumes the chickens. Well, listen to this, and if you had any doubts about whether your government is guarding you, this should clear things up. And I want to give a special thanks to Starseed Sarah, who is a wonderful warrior of, of light, doing everything she can keep people informed and to initiate change uh, and prevent um, the problems caused by cellular radiation and wireless radiation. She is a saint. So here it is. And also, get your pens ready. I'm going to give you some websites I'd like you to write down or you can replay this broadcast to get the addresses and the book names that I'm going to give you. Thanks to Sarah, I learned that the Federal Communications Commission the fox consumes the chickens, officially exempted cell towers used for 5G wireless networks from the necessity of permits. Now, industry groups, lobbyists, say the FCC's ruling will speed their deployment of 5G, untested, hastily hastened, particularly in rural areas, saying that permit applications take too long. But environmentalists have called the order unlawful, arguing that it sets a dangerous legal precedent in an administration that has consistently sought reversals to environmental laws. And listen to this. And you can find this information on, here, get your pencils out, your pens, the Cellular Phone Task Force website, 
www.cellphonetaskforce.org forward slash planetary hyphen emergency. This is going to raise the hair on the back of your neck. It did mine. On March 29, 2018, the Federal Communications Commission gave its approval to SpaceX's plan to launch an unprecedented 4,425 satellites into low orbit around the Earth. 4,425. SpaceX has applied to the FCC to increase the number of satellites to 12,000 in order to provide ultra-fast, lag-free Internet to every square inch of the Earth. 5G from space. SpaceX's CEO, Elon Musk, has announced his intention to begin launches in 2019 to begin operating as soon as he has about 100 satellites in orbit and to have at least 800 satellites up and running by 2020. And the name of SpaceX's project is Starlink. So what are the implications of this? This was an extensive article. So for the whole lowdown, you'll have to go to the website. I'm going to give that to you in a moment. Uh, I just did. I'm going to repeat it again. On September uh, 23, 1998, let's have a little review of history, the world's first satellite phones became operational. A service was provided by 66 satellites in low orbit around the Earth, launched by the Iridium Corporation. They unleashed a new kind of rain that turned the sky red and emptied it of birds for a couple of weeks. Now, a six-nation telephone survey was done of electrically sensitive people at that time. The results, 86% of electrically sensitive people became ill on the exact day the satellites were launched, with symptoms of electrical illness including headaches, dizziness, nausea, insomnia, nosebleeds, heart palpitations, asthma attacks, ringing in the ears, and so on. Some were acutely ill for up to three weeks, and in the United States, the national death rate rose by 4% to 5% for that two weeks. And during those two weeks, very few birds were seen in the sky and thousands of homing pigeons failed to return. Every bit of this was documented. So read, to read more, go to www.cellphonetaskforce.org. And there is a book titled The Invisible Rainbow, A History of Electricity and Life published in 2017. We need to get informed. Get the book, uh, visit the, the uh, website, and uh, hopefully maybe we can participate, get active, do what we need to do. So yes, the fox consumes the chickens. FCC has cleared the way for all of this and is not guarding the citizens of this, of this country. Well, ever heard of smart pavement? I hadn't. That's why I'm sharing it with you. The Colorado Department of Transportation has awarded a $2.75 million, million dollar contract for a pilot smart pavement project to be installed on a half-mile stretch of US-285 in Colorado. And this project goes hand-in-hand hand with the 5G as a part of the planned national infrastructure for driverless cars. Each slab of smart pavement will contain fiber optic mesh configured similar to a touchscreen computer. It will sense the position, weight, and velocity of every vehicle on the road within seconds, actually instantaneously, and it will also have antennas under the pavement that will send the data wirelessly to your car. What kind of data? Every kind of data. 
the road itself, according to the company that's contracted this job, will become the next information superhighway. Once cars do become autonomous, smart pavement unleashes the possibilities of the Internet, everything in it, what you can do in the car instead of driving. For some, that might be working from their cars, while for others, it might be gaming or streaming movies. It could turn your car into a mobile living room within two years. It's astonishing at how accelerated this technological development is occurring. It makes one's head spin. This is all rushing forward as we sit in our homes and relax and live our lives and try to just exist in a world spinning out of control. One day we wake up and we don't recognize anything around us. So we need to stay informed and hopefully activate in whatever measure, even with it, if it is with our light and our intention and our energy to bring things back, to put it in the direction of sanity and health and peace and a livable environment. So, our quote of the day. He who learns must suffer, and even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart, and in our own despair against our will comes wisdom, comes wisdom to us by the awful grace of the divine. Eschelus said that. So wow. We gain wisdom through our suffering. It teaches us much. And perhaps in the evolutionary course of the humanity on this planet, we are learning to suffer so that we may finally, at long last, over our long years of evolutionary process, gain the precious gift of wisdom. So that's it for tonight's Starseed News. And it's really going to be good to hear what Lavender has to tell us again. We have many people who have not heard this program and who need to hear it, and many of us would love to be refreshed. It's all very important stuff. Never again Atlantis, folks. So It's very timely, very timely very, considering very what you just you know, um, told us about technology uh, just unbridled without regard to, to health or it's just out of control. It's so out this of is control. a very, very yes. timely. So um, you were in, you were inspired. Both of you were inspired to bring this back up on the air again. We need to be reminded because you know we are not aware. You watch the news. You just try to find news. You know I work for many hours pulling these these uh, newscasts together because I have to dig and I have to research. It's just not easily available. And I want to thank this special Starseeds, uh, including, of course, as I've already said, Sarah and Emily, for helping out because they're bringing uh, us very important stuff. I can't do it all by myself. And certainly um, many of the articles that you heard tonight that are of most importance are from our Starseed listeners who are alert and aware. But we are not knowing about this. And really, you know, for many of us, it can just be overwhelming. Um, so, again, uh, we turn to spirit and deal with this in spiritual ways that we must. And if we are so led, we participate. People such as Sarah, who are out there fighting um, 
and resisting these things, and she's achieving a measure of success. Well, anyway, um, from my heart to each one of you, much love. Have a beautiful week, everybody. Well, Anastasia, thank you so much uh, for the news and all the work that you do to bring it to us. My pleasure. Okay, well, we will talk to you next week, and uh, have a good win yourself. Okay. All right, so uh, tonight, um, as we mentioned, we are going to be bringing material on Atlantis from Lavendar's Vault, and it's, it's very timely for us to remember Never Again Atlantis. This is Lavendar bringing you Atlantis material from the vault. This is June 20th, 1983, Colorado Springs, Colorado. Subject, Atlantis material. The Atlantis material was given to me in November and December of 1980 while I was on the island of Aruba. This was conveyed by telethought communication sent by extraterrestrials residing on a spacecraft within the atmosphere of our planet of Earth, yet manifesting in another dimension. This information was transferred in pictures, words, concepts, and projections, and was received, taped, typed, and put away for safekeeping until the information could be used as educational tools for the upliftment of the consciousness of the people on the planet. After receiving this material, I couldn't help but wonder if I was indeed a part of a galactic project which would have long-term effects, or did I have an overworked imagination which was stimulated by some genetic chromosome within my brain. Was this for real, me conversing with beings on a spacecraft, or had I created this whole thing on some level of mind? From the middle of November to the middle of December, I was awakened every morning at 5 a.m. and was activated into reciting out loud the happenings of a civilization which was destroyed over 12,000 years ago by the mad scientist of that time. Each morning I would view the story of Atlantis through the eyes of the one that I would learn to call the scribe. He would be sitting in his study on this ship, floating in the water where he was writing the events that had taken place since his arrival on the planet. He also would record the history of all creation and the laws that would govern these manifestations of creation. First, I would look over his shoulder to see what he was writing for the day, and then I would talk out loud into a tape recorder describing what I was perceiving of the time that was that part of history of Atlantis, the lost continent. Thurman Myers, my traveling companion and my best friend, helped me by transcribing the tapes at the end of each day's session. The sessions lasted until around 10 a.m. I would then shower and drink some grape juice, for my blood sugar would be extremely low after each session. By noon, I'd go to the kitchen and cook up a storm, fixing a fancy lunch. We would then go to the beach to relax on the sand while trying to hold on to whatever sanity we had left. I wondered if I was the only person in the world who was being shown this information and material about Atlantis, and was this for real? Had I also been there? Could I have made this up? These things I questioned every day. When the last day of information was relayed to me, I was coming very close to an emotional flip-out. 
I had seen and experienced so much in such a short period of time that I could hardly hold on to the trees, as the wind almost blew me off the world. I tried to rationalize some logical manner of how this material should be handled. I knew it would be great, then people could see what actually had happened to the lost continent of Atlantis. They could prob profit from the mistakes of ancient misuse of power. Then I thought about putting material into book form. Would I make it fiction or non-fiction? Well, truth is truth. But how was I ever going to bring this information to the attention of people who could hardly comprehend things beyond their limited points of view in politics and religion or the now moment? I pondered over this material for several months, then finally decided to put it to rest until I was given clear instructions on what to do with it. I had no idea that others whom I had not yet met would also be connected with this material in the years that followed. Thurman and I decided to make copies of this information and after doing so place them in a safe place. I'm going to relate now some of the things which happened that correlate with the Atlantis material. In the story, the scribe had a male servant by the name of Clepus. He was a very loyal subject and owed his life to the scribe. On December 7, 1980, I saw a segment pertaining to Clepus. He would bring to the scribe a crystal staff about three feet long placing on it a red cloth. The scribe would use this for balancing procedures and would use it often to counteract the energies coming from the city created by the mad scientist. At the end of that day's session, I was shown that Clepus was now incarnated into the body of one we know as Jerry Levine, a friend of ours from Reserve, New Mexico. I wondered how Jerry would react when I told him of his other life as Clepus, a male servant. On December 22, 1980, we arrived in, in Reserve, New Mexico with another friend of ours, Gina Bilodeau. I informed Jerry of a tape that I wanted him to hear. I tried to prepare him and told him to secure himself by having a beer. He told me that he told me that first he wanted to show me something which he had hand-painted on a scroll. Then he pulled out this long piece of paper, and it was drawn, a red cloth with a crystal staff. And the scroll, it was dated December 7, 1980, the same date as the information that I received about Clepus. I was speechless. Here was my first confirmation that the Atlantis material was real something beyond a coincidence. I was the one who needed the beer. I played the tape for him of the session about Clepus. He seemed pleased, but restless with the information. He didn't know quite how to take all of this, and it took him several months to really absorb what had happened to him. Neither of us talked about it again until later the next year. It just seemed, well, just too much of a coincidence. At that point in time, I didn't really want to consider anything else. Now to go to another date, still the same story. One of the reasons that Atlantis was destroyed was because of the misuse of power in many areas. But the misuse of vibrational music contributed heavily 
to the final decision to wipe Atlantis off the face of the earth, and wiped it was. For thousands of years it has remained buried under the Atlantic Ocean, with very little physical evidence surfacing to acknowledge the possibility that such a continent even existed. How could such an advanced race of people destroy themselves? What was the contributing factor behind the scrubbing of an entire species? What cosmic laws were broken? And who were the souls that lived then? Are they back now? These are some of the questions that we would like those reading this to ask themselves. If you have lived at that period of time, then what was your contribution to this action? That should raise the hair on the back of your necks, for almost all of you have been connected to Atlantis in one form or another, if not directly, then indirectly through others that you have known and loved on this planet. No one ever really escapes the memories of Atlantis. In the last days of Atlantis, a group of scientists got together and decided that the people should be controlled by vibrational music. A device was engineered to wear on the head. It consisted of quartz crystal, ruby, gold, silver, and copper. Everyone was to wear this device, and if they didn't, then punishment would ensue. It was the theory of the High Council of Elders that Atlantis would become a more productive country if energies could be controlled through orchestrating the people and certain music was designed to enhance the daily workers that kept all parts of the country in operation. The people liked the music and looked forward to the new and visualization vibrational patterns. They didn't mind this kind of control, not really. They felt better and became model citizens and growth and advancement was visible. So the practice of wearing the headsets became as normal as one wearing clothes. The masses just never thought that that headset that they were wearing every day would contribute to the downfall of one of the most advanced civilizations that your planet has ever known. Had they even suspected that it would be turned on them, maybe, just maybe, the story of Atlantis would have been different. When Poseidon became king, who in your present knowing as John Fitzgerald Kennedy, the land of Atlantis was an outpost to some neighboring planets, and many species came to visit Atlantis and its people. It was an experiment of sorts, yes. Just think of it as a huge experiment that got carried away with itself. Poseidon was Pleiadian in blood-coating and ruled for a very long time. He was a gracious and kind king, but ruled his people in such a way that they would have laid down their lives for him had he asked it. Later, when he was Abraham Lincoln, he asked it in the war between the North and the South. And later, when he was John Kennedy, he asked it for Vietnam. He had many children and was dearly loved by all except one, his oldest, Arpheus Marcus, who now is incarnated as Ronald Reagan, President of the United States of America. When Poseidon died, Orpheus Marcus took the throne, and it was not his father's wish that he do so. But when Poseidon was poisoned with an extraterrestrial substance, then he had no say about the matter. 
This poisonous substance had far-reaching effects even after the death of the physical body. The soul experienced explosions of energy similar to magnetic storms of the sun. There is no other way to describe this. Now more detail about the building and the music in Atlantis. The buildings had music coming from the walls. As a person walked on quartz cobbled streets, the music in the headset would be stimulated by the energies of the quartz and the streets. There was a substance similar to mortar between the quartz stones that would keep the people from getting tired and also help further the coding of the music. People's dispositions and attitudes were all controlled by vibrational conditioning through music, color, and subliminal brain control. As long as the people were peaceful and happy, everything seemed to be going just fine. When Orpheus Marcus took over, he commissioned some scientists to further their experimentation, and through his lack of discernment and love of power, he helped to destroy all of the good works of his father. Scientists discovered chemicals that would speed up a person's energy pattern and other chemicals that would slow them down. And today, scientists have come close to duplicating these drugs, but not exactly. Orphus Marcus decided to change a few laws to suit himself and declared that the law of Warren should be abolished along with women having any rights whatsoever. He also destroyed the marital system and allowed a man to have more than one wife. He started to destroy within himself first all his spiritual knowledge and reasoning and later extended those beliefs to his people with control of their minds, bodies, and souls. He was able to program an entire race of people the way he wanted them to be. Later, after several years, he started changing the DNA and the RNA code of the people and helped to create monsters that were half-human and half-animal, the things as they were called. Mutations started to happen with much regularity. Celestial messengers came to warn him of his evil doings. They told him that if he did not reverse his era, that forces would be let loose that would destroy the entire country. This he did not believe, as he was totally consumed with his power, and was by this time a drug addict and could not be reasoned with at all. Another use for the headsets was of an educational value. People would go to various learning centers for their education. They would enter by using a punch card that would keep records of how many times they visited the learning center. When one would return, he would have to show the card because one could not go there too often. This would cause a mental breakdown if misused. One would simply lay back in a special chair that would align the body to different electromagnetic fields. The headset would be placed with a quartz crystal over the third eye. A disc would be placed in the headset, and music, color, and sounds would enhance the vibrational conditioning of the learning process. This kind of learning was fed at harmonic rates that caused very high levels of awareness to take place. What would take one year to learn in reading could be obtained in minutes at this very accelerated rate of comprehension. 
This is how the education of the people was conducted. After the session was over, the headset would be worn with certain music reaffirming everything that was beamed from the headset earlier. It was through this educational manner that discs were tampered with and the distortions were set in motion. People had given up their free will in order for a saner society to develop. Once the will was gone, they were nothing more than robots waiting for instruction or destruction. There were a few that had their wills, and it was through them that a rebellion started. Some left and even went to other countries. Atlantis was an experiment that failed. The perfect society was, in the end, a disgusting, demonic, grotesque misuse of power. All that had participated in this atrocity would have other lessons to learn. Eventually, when the cosmic calendar returned, they'd be placed together with the same leaders, the same scientists, but with a different script. This is happening now, as we speak to you this day of your counting. In March of 1981, Thurman and I ventured to Egypt on a tour called Atlantis Rising. We thought it was only appropriate that we should be on this trip so properly named. However, I hardly think I will go again with 250 metaphysicians. It was insanity from the beginning. Thurman and I seemed to have a protective shield around us which made us invisible most of the time. It wasn't until President Reagan was shot on March 29th that we seemed to become visible. That morning in Ajwan, people would come up to me and ask, where had we been? I told them that we'd been sitting at their tables, on their buses, on their tours. They were stunned because they had never seen us until that day, so they said. I didn't know how to explain it, but now it seems obvious we were being protected from so many various frequencies from among the people. In the Atlantis material, I was shown that the king who had changed the laws and, and th threw out the law of one was the one and same soul essence of Ronald Reagan. He had allowed the mad scientist to corrupt the land and children and had sanctioned cruel experiments on half-animal and half-human beings. He was in power when the great crystal was misused, causing it to explode, bringing about crazy weather and earthquakes which soon made the entire continent disappear. I remembered vividly how Ronald Reagan had won by landslide on November 4, 1980 over President Jimmy Carter. How stunned people were by the outcome. Some were shocked that a B-grade actor could bring himself to be President of the United States. I recall thinking as I watched the election return in Las Vegas, Nevada, how millions of people were giving this man their votes and they probably didn't even know why. I can still feel the chills that went through me when he made his acceptance speech. I will never forget the looks on the faces of Jimmy and Rosalind Carter as though they had just seen Armageddon. I left Las Vegas the next day on November 9th and adjourned to Aruba. I wasn't aware of any presidential activities leading up to the inauguration. We had a television but everything was in Spanish. 
I didn't think of Ronald Reagan until near the end of the Atlantis material when I was shown that he was the presiding king when Atlantis sank. Then I was in shock. What was this man doing as the leader of our country? Had he changed since Atlantis? Was he still the same power-hungry man who had caused millions to vanish overnight in, a, in the most catastrophic happening in the history of the planet? What were his motives now? And whose side was he on? And why tell me? I'm just a little farm girl from southwest Oklahoma. In the Atlantis material I was shown in the king's speech to the people, he proclaimed himself to be ruler of all men. I saw his coronation in every detail. His crowning was the celebration of all celebrations. It was performed in a large amphitheater in the round. Circus acts, entertainers like Siegfried and Roy and Margaret and others who are in the spotlight of today were among the same performers of that day as well. There has never been anything, even in Las Vegas, to compare to the gala happening of the coronation of the new king. I saw a woman in her late twenties standing outside the festivities with tears in her eyes. I watched her go to her house where her three children awaited their dinner. These were the new king's children, but he was not allowed to claim them because they were not of royal bloodline. In his hour of glory, the woman and children who loved him would be left behind and cast aside because of the rules of the land. I heard her praying before her children at the dinner table. O oh, infinite is, bless him this day of his crowning. Please, dear God, some way, some day, please bring him back to me. This humble woman today is Nancy Reagan, and the children, the same children as, as are his today. The new king had one very good friend who was a singer and an actor in the theater. As a special surprise for his coronation, the scientist had developed and placed in his friend a mechanical voice box which made his voice so beautiful and with vocal range so precise that the sounds could activate the sexual glands of all the women who would hear his voice. That friend was the sole essence of the one that we now call Frank Sinatra. Women swooned, falling at his feet in those days, even as in, in, the, in those days, like today. As you remember back in the 40s, a skinny kid from New Jersey had women falling all over themselves. There was no logic. They all acted as though they were experiencing the effects of some aphrodisiac. Was this soul memory? Had some of them lived in Atlantis? Could all of this be happening again? On December 11th, as I arrived at the Miami airport, I picked up a newspaper. I hadn't seen one for a month. The first thing that met my eyes was the picture of Ronald Reagan with his arm around Frank Sinatra, and the caption read, Sinatra, inaugural chairman. I almost fainted. Thurman propped me up because he knew what I was experiencing, a realization only he could share at that time. We both looked at each other and was unable to really say a word. Slowly I walked to my next plane with my heart in my throat. As Thurman was catching a different plane, we parted with the realization that it was not an accident that Sinatra was to be the inaugural chairman. In charge of all the festivities for the president, was history repeating itself?
Were these two back again in their famous duo? So many questions were bombarding my mind as I boarded my plane for Denver. Answers? Are you kidding? How was I ever going to convince anyone of the things I knew and what I was thinking? The whole prospect made me nervous, and as a consequence, I ordered a double martini and promptly fell into a deep sleep from the remainder of the flight. To this day, Thurman has never revealed to me how he felt, but I think I had felt enough for both of us. I didn't see the inauguration, but I heard that it was one of the most classy acts to hit Washington in a long time. I tried not to think too much of Ronald Reagan and Frank Sinatra in regard to the Atlantis material. They were a part of it, but were not the main characters of the story. In fact, they were just bit players in the whole scenario. Well, back to Cairo. We were getting off the train in Cairo from Ajwan when we received the news of the assassination attempt upon the President. I began flashing like a neon sign. It's useless trying to put on paper all the thoughts and feelings upon hearing the news. Here we were in the Middle East. And where was my passport? Were the natives going to remain friendly? My strongest thought was that I must get to the hotel and into a tub of water, which I did as soon as possible. While in the tub, I heard again from the guides who had brought the Atlantis material to me. They told me to go and find Mahmoud, the keeper of the pyramids, and ask if we could secure it alone so that we could pray for our president. Also, I was told to locate ten others and take them inside the Great Pyramid of Giza and allow each one to hold a crystal. Once inside, I was to await further instructions. As I walked from the bathroom, I seemed to be floating on another type of energy, something that wasn't my own. My brain sped up, and my vision was so accurate that I was seeing through the walls. Upon seeing and hearing me, Thurman knew what had to be done, and he called ten people on the phone with instructions to meet us at the entrance to the pyramid. Upon our arrival, my mood closed the tour to all other tickets. Of course, many on tour who had purchased tickets were very upset, and a busload of French and German people both cussed us and made nasty gestures. I could see and feel the hate coming from their eyes and felt their lack of understanding of what we were about to do. An Egyptian girl appeared saying that she had been asked to come to the pyramid to pray for our president. I had never seen her before, but I felt she had been sent for a reason. Two more from our group made their appearance, and once inside, we found three more already awaiting us, which made a total of 18, and that's exactly how many crystals I had I had to bring to those presents to hold. These particular crystals have been given to me in a mysterious manner, which I shall not reveal at this time. I was the mediator of the group and led them in chants and mantras. We sent our energies out with the help of the energies of the pyramid through the crystals to President Reagan to bring healing and strength to his physical, mental, spiritual, and psychic body. We had also been told that his press secretary, Jim Brady, had died. So we conducted a ritual for his soul to go through Bar Bardo peacefully. Upon our return to the United States, we learned that at that exact moment we were conducting the service for Jim Brady. He had experienced a miraculous recovery which mystified the medical doctors.
It was agreed medically that he had been declared dead, but had been brought back to life. Actually, they were correct, for the conscious energies which were at work operated under the assumption that he had crossed over into the bardo state. When you help someone through bardo, you help take their spirit to the next stage of evolution through peace and harmony. After that energy had been directed to the United States, several people laid down in the sarcophagus and accepted a healing. That day in the pyramid was of special significance to all of us. Although I had asked that all the crystals be returned to me after the service, two of those present did not return them, and I don't know what has happened to the crystals or to the people. Did we interfere in the matters of God? Were we playing God? What were the powers of that great pyramid, and what powers of energy were in those crystals? Who were these beings conducting the healing exercise? And if it's true that Ronald Reagan was the king of Atlantis when it went down, then why was it important that we help to save him? Was he now the good king, making restitution for past mistakes? Did his soul need to balance the karmic debt to millions of people from Atlantis? Were we helping to establish a new galactic walk-in energy, which would help the president to bring about the balance needed? These things I've asked myself a hundred times since that day. All of this wasn't exactly a confirmation of the Atlantis material. It wasn't provable, as with Jerry Levine. But still, it hit home as a contributing factor, helping to bring forth this truth about the Atlantis material. Because you know when the truth hits you, you just seem to know it. One week before the healing session in the pyramid for the president, I had experienced another segment of the Atlantis material while I was lying in the sarcophagus where I was shown the final chapter from the scribe. The dark forces Belial's had infiltrated the light forces and had found a way to help eliminate some of the twelve who had been brought to the planet. As I was awaiting the scene to begin, I became aware of the presence of a very strong cobalt blue light which seemed to pervade the king's chamber. I knew then that that was what was about to happen was to see the most important segment, the final chapter of this incredible story. The beginning scene showed Clapus, the scribe's servant, walking next to the crystal cylinder which contained the body of the scribe. This surprised me and brought tears to my eyes. Clapus was holding a copy of the records which the scribe had written and already placed in four other places around the world. I didn't consciously know that there were other copies of his writings, although it would stand to reason that there should be a backup system for future discovery. Clapus carried the records in a box, so I couldn't really see how the information was conveyed. Later, my impression was that it was coated in quartz crystal, such as maybe a crystal skull. The Atlanteans were very advanced in all technology and would know how to secure delicate information in a protective way to prevent misuse of the information. Once those who had the proper attunement and blood coating of remembrance would be able to tap these records at the proper time. Safeguards were placed over every set of records, for the balance of the planet was at stake. Never again would this valuable information be used by the dark forces. 
This is the reason for protective energies 24 hours a day of Earth time, which is placed over this information and all the places where they are. Kleypas left Atlantis with a copy of the records. I watched him as he finally took them to someone in France. I wasn't shown who at that time, but I was shown that it eventually came into the hands of Nostradamus, the famous seer of France in the 16th century. Later it was revealed to me that Merlin also had it in his possession, and he showed it to King Arthur, who in turn entrusted it to Sir Lancelot to be taken to the next destination. Nostradamus had previously been, been one of the original twelve, and so was Merlin. It was planned that the record only be in the hands of one of the twelve, or the energies of the bloodline of the twelve. This was done for safety of information. Nostradamus used these records as a guideline for his quatrains, for which he later became famous. In these records were the ancestral bloodlines of how the programming would take place concerning the transmutation process of eliminating the laggard blood off the planet. This process would take thousands of years, for it all had to come about through the cosmic laws and would only work through a computerized time capsule to be released by cosmic planetary energies which had been set in motion and were irreversible. Nostradamus passed it on to others who would have the proper blood coating and now it is somewhere in France guarded day and night by a swarm of white doves. Although I was given the place, I will not disclose it in this writing. You know, later it was revealed to me that I had a, a relative whose name was Ed Criswell of Criswell Predicts. And he always said he was the incarnation of Nostradamus. You know, it was Chris who helped threw me into the world to do psychic work and investigation which brought me to this information about the records of Atlantis. Chris died on October 3, 1982, the same day that Mukananda died. I visualized them leaving the planet hand in hand to further help to organize the next assignment dealing with the balance of the planet. In Chris's last year, he became an alcoholic, but after learning what information he carried in his blood and soul, it is quite understandable. For a time, I was judgmental with regard to his behavior, but you know what? Not anymore. The information contained in those records is so mind-expanding that it is very hard to maintain Earth's sanity and still keep an Earth balance. As I write this, I can feel Chris's presence, can still see his clear blue eyes, as though they were on this written page. Suddenly, a fire alarm has sounded in the building across the street. I am smiling and thinking of Chris making one of his dramatic entrances and exits like a showman. Several months after returning from Egypt, I made a trip to Reserve New Mexico to see Jerry Levine, alias Klepus, to tell him of the final chapter of the scribe. While talking to him, I noticed the color in his face changing drastically. When I finished telling him the story, he pulled out a piece of paper which had arrived from France. This paper now has been misplaced or has disappeared. It seems that his blood relatives in France had traced him to New Mexico and had offered him a piece of property in France if he could pay back taxes on it. 
It was a name similar to the name of the place in which I had seen the records to be. I felt an explosion in my brain. I wanted to run out of the building, screaming down the street. Although I didn't, I surely wanted to. Instead, I calmly changed the subject and finished telling Jerry other interesting incidents of our trip. If Jerry was hit by what had just happened, he didn't show it. Months later, when I would bring up the subject, nothing seemed to register. For some reason, it almost seemed he was not supposed to remember the connection. I took it as a sign of safety of information. Was this all a coincidence? Is there such a thing? Who was setting this plan into motion? Was Jerry to pay the taxes and claim his right to the records, or was I to pay them for him? Why had Jerry's mind received and understood everything up to a point and then went blank? Was some part of him protecting his sanity or perhaps even the records themselves? These were all things that I had to consider. Again, we didn't talk about this for another year. It was just all too much to think about, much less handle in an everyday existence. In fact, I chose to put the Atlantis material away and not talk of it or show it to, even to my friends. In November of 1982, I was led to show the material to, to actress Shirley MacLaine. There was some reason she was to know about this material. I remembered her saying, Why are you showing me this? I told her that possibly something would take place later which would fit together with the Atlantis material. I didn't tell her that she was my backup system and now the information was also her responsibility. The timing was wrong, and her energies just hadn't shown up yet for that. She handled the information in a very cool manner, I suppose because of her professionalism as an actress. I wanted to shake her and just say, Listen, Shirley, if I don't get this job done, then you'll have to do it. Instead, I pouted and poured myself another brandy. Atlantis didn't seem to be in any other person's recall bank but mine at least not like I was experiencing. But the timing wasn't right, and as usual, I was getting very impatient. Once again, I put away the Atlantis material and turned my attention to other things. Then on May 3rd, 1983, Thurman and I went to North Carolina to see Andre Puarich and his wife Rebecca and their two children. Andrea is a man of about 67 years, and Rebecca is about 30. It was he who discovered and promoted Yuri Geller, the Israeli, who has the great power of telekinesis, the power of bending metal. Andrea had spent a great deal of time, money, and energy showing the intellects of the world the extreme possibilities of universal laws and concepts. He had written a book about Yuri and his encounters with a spacecraft called Spectra. This book is of such great magnitude that a witch hunt was begun to try and stop Andrea from further writing and informing the people. This book has now been banned from public libraries in the United States. Furthermore, no publisher is allowed to print any of his material for fear of having the Internal Revenue Service audit their books for the next 20 years. He became such a threat to scientists, politicians, and the CIA that he has had to flee for his life to Mexico where he and his family have lived for three and a half years. His exodus came when the CIA had his house burned along with his books. Not since the persecution of Nikolai Tesla or William Reich 
has the government so vermintly gone after the soul of a man dedicated to so much truth. Now he has returned to the United States, and he's working on a cancer cure. I've admired his courage and desire to return to his country, which has only persecuted him for his efforts. Why does the government fear this one man to such extremes? What does he know that can hurt it? Why not work with him instead of against him? I wish I understood more about how our government thinks and works. One day, as we were sitting on the porch, enjoying the countryside and visiting with these fine people, I decided to tell Andrea and Rebecca the story of the scribe and the Atlantis material. Just at the exact moment I had finished telling the story, the phone rang. Rebecca excused herself and went to answer the phone. Their phone is unlisted, and only a handful of people have it, and so we, since we had arrived, the phone had not been working, and each time we tried to call town, a recording would tell us that the number we had dialed was no longer in working order. I just shrugged and thought it was another way in which we were being protected. Rebecca returned to tell us that some man had just called from that place in France, you know, the place that Jerry Levine had just been told that he needed to pay taxes and wanted to know if Andrea had found the Book of Knowledge yet. He further said that Rebecca's mother had given him the phone number and he left Rebecca a number for Andrea to call. I had not been aware of Andrea's searching for the Book of Knowledge because I hadn't yet read his book and didn't know that Spectra had once told he and Yuri that they would find this Book of Knowledge. After relaying the message to us, we must have all looked like fried lightning bugs because our hair stood straight upon end. Rebecca pulled us all into the living room and showed us a map of France dated 1700. On the map was the name of that town, but it was spelled differently. As I looked at the map, a part of my brain started clicking and I began to get dizzy. Rebecca was talking but I seemed to be in a fog and couldn't hear what she was saying. Later, she repeated it for me. Her in-laws from previous marriage have a house in France, and they give it to her uh, one month out of each year. Well, that just about fixed me. The whole thing was too much, so I retreated to the kitchen to busy myself cooking chicken soup. Andrea had to go to bed. Thurman took a walk in the woods, and Rebecca started the laundry and doing her duties. We all knew what was happening, but none of us was yet willing to talk about it. Only Rebecca mentioned it off and on for the next few days. Every time she did, I wanted to put my hand over her mouth. I just didn't want to hear it. I wanted to be finished with the Atlantis material. Who was going to believe it anyway? And then there was Andrea. He had not so much as ever wished that the book of knowledge would be within his grasp, for Yuri had not seen fit to help him even look for the book. His interests were in other things. I had been so excited upon so many different occasions that I was, I was afraid to be excited anymore. But here was Rebecca, newly activated to the material, and she was so excited about it. Further, we certainly didn't want someone telling us about more work to be done, and this time it could be dangerous beyond belief. 
If the government had done terrible things to Andrea because of his book and beliefs, then what in the hell were they going to do to him now? Furthermore, what were they going to do to me? I tried to tell my paranoia to sit down and shut up, but facts are facts, and I, I couldn't ignore them. For a moment I flashed upon living on the farm in southwest Oklahoma driving a tractor. Was this what my daydreams from youth had brought me? What would happen when the news leaked out that some little farm girl could have access to secrets and records of a continent that wasn't here anymore, with very little evidence that it had ever existed? The whole scene was too much. With my temper, the temperament the way it is, I just said, Screw it. I don't want to play anymore. However, things were happening in such a synchronized manner that I knew I was part of a gigantic plan and my not wanting to play didn't seem to matter to the forces who were setting this plan into motion. If I didn't play, they had someone else to start where I stopped. Either I shaped up an attitude or I shipped out. It was very mathematical. Simple, subtract me, add someone else, or let me play. I decided to play mainly because I had come so far whether sane or not, and I wanted to see just how much further this information of the records would take me. I realized this would be dangerous, but then what the hell? What was this book of knowledge? Would this information become public, or would this be the secret of my life? And that is the end of the reading of the material from the vault. Back to you, Ariel. Well, Lavendar, thank you so much for sharing us and sharing this with us and helping us to remember that if we do not learn the lessons of history, we're doomed to repeat them. So with that, I want to thank you all for listening, and we will be back next week. And until then, take care and remember to find something to be grateful for every day. Good night, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 